MSW Media. Prevail. Це щотижнева програма про політику. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Globalno korupcijo ta brodbu za demokratijo. Ja ora. A tebe? I matnon? Kom ustedes? Su anfitrion? I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. We've got a great show. Diana Speckler is here. This is the 125th episode of the Prevail podcast, somehow. It is the season finale of season six, even though, I mean, it's not like we have character arcs and story arcs and things like that on a, on a podcast like this, but I don't know. I feel like it's, it's hip to, to make a season out of it. So I will return on Friday, February 16th. I'm going to take three weeks off and I will be back for the last podcast of any season. I, I like to deviate a little bit from what we usually talk about, which is horrible stuff. Um, so that's why I wanted to have Diana on. Um, she's like me, a, a novelist, an essayist, and uh, unlike me, she's a travel writer. And she's been all over the world, um, you know, really for the last, I think, seven, eight years. She's been traveling a lot, writing about it. She writes about it professionally for magazines and newspapers and stuff. But she also has a an excellent substack stack uh, called Dispatches from the Road, which is her own travel writing stuff, uh, where she talks about things that are, you know, personal to her. She's one of my favorite writers. Um, I just really like the way she approaches anything. It's interesting always to read her take on things and how she chooses to, uh, to frame things and always makes me think um, and laugh. Yeah, I wanted to have her on for a while now, and I figured this was a good time. So we talk about, uh, not a lot about Trump and horrible things. We talk about writing. We talk about the novel as an art form. We talk about what makes writers write. Uh, we talk about the allure of travel and new experiences. I ask her where her favorite places are to go. We talk about how the United States is perceived abroad. And we talk about separating art from the artist and the political climate in Texas, because she's in Texas now, um, and lots of other things besides. So it's a great conversation. I think I, listening to it, I think I talked too much, but uh, that's okay. It's more of a discussion, I think, than a, an interview interview. Either way, um, I had a great time talking to her. I think you're going to enjoy listening to what we have to say. I don't have much up top. It's, it's, a, it's a strange time right now. There are things that I did never even heard of like a week ago that apparently are, are going to rip apart democracy, something called the Chevron deference. I don't even know what this stuff is, this legal stuff. Legal Twitter is all abuzz with this um, case that's before the Supreme Court now, and it's looking like uh, Gorsuch and company are going to screw us, um, which is their want. Yeah, so I don't know. It's it's strange. You know, these things like, um, I do feel like 
the news is kind of like episodic, right? Like this is season seven, I guess, of the Trump weirdness. And uh, we have to just keep throwing in new characters, new plot developments, new twists. So, you know, that's the twist. The other twist is that <laughs> Democrats are trying to solve the border issue that Republicans came claim to care about so much. And Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is refusing to cooperate and do that because he wants to wait for Trump to get in there to do anything because they want to continue to campaign on the border stuff, which is so cynical and awful. Like, if you really care about it, maybe do something about it. Use your very ample power to create some change. But no, all they care about is getting elected. And um, if Trump is elected, it's going to be a dictatorship, which is not going to be fun. So... I know we keep saying that and people probably roll their eyes. Well, it's not going to be a dictatorship. It is going to be one because that's what he said and that's what he's going to do. And when all of the scholars in the country who study this stuff are screaming from the rooftops and pulling out their hair warning us, I mean, they know what they're talking about more than I do. So, you know, we got to listen to the experts here. I know the Trump people don't want anybody to listen to experts, but experts know what they're talking about. That's why we got to listen to them. So... Like I said, this is the season finale. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank all of my guests that I've had on this season for a great run here. Uh, I want to thank Kenai Williams and Molly Hockey at MSW Media for uh, all their help putting this podcast together. Yeah, and if you want to support what I'm doing, please go to my Substack, which is gregoliar.substack.com, and subscribe. Costs six dollars a month, fifty-five dollars a year. And it helps keep the lights on, as they say. And while you're on Substack, check out Diana Speckler's Substack, which is her name, uh, Diana and then S-P-E-C-H-L-E-R dot Substack dot com for excellent content. All right, enough of my prattle. We'll be right back with Diana Speckler. Capturing the courts a guy who's an eminence of greed Custom tailored suits like the penguin at Jones Day Move away from the left tip, heart to the right He is the secret SCOTUS guy And he got 1.6 billion from that asshole very side Entertainment that's really corrupting our youth He's Leonard Leo if you're female, trans, or gay. He spends dark millions just to strip your rights away. He owns six justices and they all vote his way. He's Leonard Leo, night of Malta Opus Day. I spent close to 30 years of Diana Speckler, welcome to Prevail. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's very I'm very excited to talk to you because I've been I've been reading your uh your dispatches from the road. Um, on your Substack, which is called Dispatches from the Road, um, you know, clever title, uh, and I I encourage people to uh, to subscribe to this and go read 
what you've been doing. But I wanted to have you on as the season finale uh, guest because I've had on a lot of, um, you know, we, we, we've focused on a lot of really dark, uh, depressing topics on this show uh, in the last year. So I want to talk about, I want to deviate from that slightly and talk about, you know, writing and art and uh, what it's like to live uh, as a writer um, now in this very, very strange time that we're living in. So um, just to give people a, a sense of why we know each other. Um, we met, I believe it was the fall of 2011. You had your second book come out, uh, Skinny, the first book, Who By Fire. And I had my second book come out, Father Mucker, the first one, Totally Killer. And there was some sort of event that Harper Collins had. There was a, like six or seven of us. There. I can't remember. Do you remember anything about it? I don't. I, for some reason, remember meeting you at KGB bar, but was, am I wrong? No, we probably did something there later. Yeah. Okay, so th- we're talking about a different event. Yeah, hmm. yeah. This was like some corporate thing where okay. we're at the we're at the the mothership, and I I I think we met with publicity people. I don't even remember. Um, but I feel like your career and my career have sort of not been on the exact same trajectory, but they've definitely you know, mirrored each other as we've gone along from that, from that time. Totally. We've kept bumping into each other for various creative reasons. Yes. Yes. And um, like, for example, when I launched the weaklings in 2012, you were one of the original weaklings. Yes. That was my old, the, the conceit of that. It was weaklings with two E's. And the conceit was that each person would write once a week and we'd have just one post every day. So Tuesday was my day. I think your day was Wednesday. I can't remember. And you you did that for a while. I was all I always loved your your stuff on there. So it was so funny, and uh, you know, quirky and very very you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I loved doing the weaklings. I was actually going to ask you if your listeners knew about the weaklings because this was such a cool project that you started, and I was so touched to be asked to be one of the weaklings. I can't remember if were there seven of us or five of us. There were seven. There were seven. seven. Yeah. Um, yeah, cause I did Jen Cabot, um, who was the co-founder with me who lives also up here. Um, you know, she did one of the times and then, yeah, we did it for, for a long time and <laughs> you're honored to be asked. I, I thought about it now. I, uh, you know, Hey, please write this essay for me once a week for free. That would be great. You know, I know, I, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Why was I so honored to be asked? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I mean, I didn't make, I, I made zero money from the weaklings. No, I, I know. Think we were a, not, a, nobody, nobody was making any money back then. I yeah. mean, it was really fun. Yeah, it was good. And we had a nice, uh, that was sort of the transition into the, the sort of blogging era, I guess, for, for yeah. us in, in a lot of ways. So um, I want to talk about novels because we have two novels and then there's, there's no novels from, from either of us. And what do you think of, I, I, in general terms, what do you think of the novel like as an art form now? Do you think it's changed oh, wow. any? Yeah. Uh, just in the, in, in the big picture, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about it. Like why, what drew you to writing novels to begin with rather than something else? Yeah. I do feel like, um, I don't know what I can say about where the novel has landed today. I don't think I can speak in such broad terms. I mean, I do think there are still really amazing novels coming out. Um, I find myself more drawn these days, not to the plot driven, you know, epic 
long novels that I might have been drawn to in the past. I find myself more drawn to novels that honestly read almost like personal nonfiction. Yeah. And I find myself writing like that as well, whether I'm writing fiction or nonfiction. So I don't know. I mean, I I do feel like the world has changed so completely, or at least in this country. I mean, since the Trump years and since COVID that like everything's just been turned on its head. And of course, like the novel looks different or my attraction to the novel feels different as from what it did before, which is kind of what I can say about everything. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, what about you? I'm curious. I started writing novels because I, I thought to myself, I could, this is in college now. I said, I could go to LA and try to be a screenwriter or I could write novels. And I figured that just the physical act of writing, uh, not dreaming it up or any of the, the work, but the, just actually typing it out. Anybody can sit down and type out 120 page screenplay physically. It's not, most of it's white space. But to sit down and crank out like 80,000 words on anything is really hard to do, even if it's terrible. So I figured, how many people are even doing this? Maybe my, my odds are better. Uh, but I think also I like, I like kind of the long form. I like the, I like the pacing of it, you know, the, the um, sort of deliberate pace where you can, there's enough room to move around and meet the auxiliary characters and, and, and get into stuff. And you can kind of do whatever you want. But lately, I don't know. I just I don't have time to read anymore. I feel like my my the way that I think has changed. I think Twitter broke my brain. I think that <laughs> that, the... that makes a lot of sense to me, <laughs> uh, for sure. I think it's broken a lot of brains. Um, I do one thing that I do like about writing fiction, especially being engaged in a really long project, is is the disappearing into it. You know, I think it's more yes. for me. It's more psychological. It's like an escape, a vice, maybe. Yeah. Um, which is honestly not very different for me from writing creative nonfiction or personal nonfiction. I think, you know, I, I just love the trance state because I need to escape. And that's the escape. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, did you read Reality Hunger? Do you know Reality Hunger? I, I know you're talking about Shields. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I have read parts of it. I never read it. To yeah. be honest. No, just yeah. the, his idea, what you were saying about the creative nonfiction. I thought that you were going to say that. And I agree because um, I feel like the most interesting books are the ones that I think are real, you know, and that there's always his argument. Reality hunger is we're, you know, we have hunger for things that are seem real, even though they're not real. Yeah. So, um, you know, fake memoirs and oh, things like that. Is- I didn't know that was the argument. That's interesting. Is that the one that he wrote that's sort of against the novel? No, it's, it has, it's most of the book is just, um, things that he lifted from elsewhere. It's sort of like a a collage of little sayings and a paragraph, a sentence. It's very, it's, it's almost like a, a a poetry book or something. It's very cool. Um, so yeah, but I think that, you know, getting at that, at that, that sense of reality, even as an escape is interesting. It's just an interesting idea. And I wonder if it's always been this way or if it's because we're living now and everything feels so crazy. I mean, why do you think it is that, you know, that we're trending in that, in that direction? In which direction? And the, 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 the reality-based direction rather than the, I'm going to go play Quidditch and get into my invisibility cloak and kill the wizard kind of direction. Totally. Um, okay. So 
I think writing about what we're calling reality or just writing nonfiction, it's still not reality, you know, because it's not total. It's just a sliver and we're choosing the sliver. And I think there's something, you know, there's something about that that's similar to the experience of writing fiction. It's like, you're still choosing where to go in your mind. Yeah. And I think these days, um, the news is so devastating and um, has been for a long time now, and we don't get to control that. I still think it's a, a matter of, of disappearing into something, or at least, you know, that's just from my perspective, because that's what it is for me. I like being able to choose which version of reality I'm going to enter. Yeah, no, I and we want your opinion. That's why you're on the show. I don't care what anybody else thinks about this. I care what you think. About. <laughs> um, so you wrote in a piece on uh, on your Substack, which again dispatches and road. You wrote about selfishness and um, you know our our writers selfish and that and that kind of thing. And then you kind of go and you answer the question. And at the end, you say, you know, like why do we write at all? And at one and you say that for you, it's just you've you're saddled with this you know, the writerly impulse, you know, with the drive to write. So I'm curious about that. What, how did you come to that conclusion? And is it different now than it was when you wrote that originally, which isn't even that long ago, I suppose. Yeah, yeah I think I wrote that in the spring. I, um, it's just, you know how it is when you're a writer, people are always asking you those kinds of questions. Why do you write? Where do you get your ideas? Like what, what is it that draws, you know, and it's like, I, I just, I think just where I've landed in general is I write because I'm a writer. It feels so inextricably bound to my identity. I think I was just born like this. And yeah. um, so when I'm not doing it, I feel off kilter. And therefore, I, I must do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you write every day or almost every day? Well, it's it's a tricky question because my the way i make money is is writing but it's not necessarily the kind of writing that i love to do or the kind that fulfills me it's just you know how it is we have limited skill sets <laughs> i mean i yep. think that's true of everyone everyone has a limited skill set um for writers it's you you know how to write um maybe you know how to teach i do that too um, yep. so I do a lot of freelance writing for magazines and it's not always the kind of writing that I can really get lost in or the kinds of things that I want to be writing about, which is actually why I started, um, my Substack because I do a lot of travel writing and I love traveling and I love writing about destinations, but the kinds of stories that publications want aren't necessarily the kinds of stories that. I want to tell. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm much more interested in, in the kind, in, in general, when I'm reading too, I'm much more interested in the kind of writing that feels like a representation of the writer's consciousness and not necessarily, here's what I did on my trip, you know, or here's this new hotel or whatever. Um, and so I, I was traveling all the time and writing about it for publications. And then there, but there were all these stories in my head that I felt like were more interesting that I wanted to tell, but there's really nowhere to publish them. And so, yeah. um, yeah, that's kind of what my Substack is. I like it. I, you know, the Substack is great, by the way. I, I didn't say Thank that you. up front, but I, I, yeah, I always, it's, I subscribe to it and it's wonderful. Um, so I've always been a fan of, of 
pretty much anything you write. I would probably even even like the um, these freelance pieces would probably be fine too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've always been you've always been such a supporter, and I don't know if your listeners know this that you're just like such an amazing supporter of other writers. You're a cheerleader, and you've always been like that. And even now that you're you know in high demand, you still you still oh, do please. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I try, you know, we have to, yeah, we we have to, we have to help each other, but it's, I, you know, I'm not going to do that unless I like it, you know, so it's not, um, I asked if you wrote every day, because I feel like I write almost every day in the morning, I get up early, I sit down and I write, and again, you know, I'm not writing fiction anymore, I'm not even writing creative nonfiction, I'm writing these news analysis pieces, which can be very creative, and and they are very rewarding to write, they're fun for me to write, even if I'm writing about something awful. Uh, but I, I have two things. I mean, you talked about the drive of writing. Um, part of me feels like if I stop, I'll just die. I'll just die. I won't be able to do anything else. I'll just die because I, I've had that happen before creatively where, um, I used to be in the plays all the time, like in high school. And then I went to college and then, uh, was in the plays. And then one play that we did, I didn't get into the play and it, it fucked me up. Like I was like, but I'm always in the play. What am I going to, I didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, there wasn't a good part for me in it. It was, it's, it's cool. But um, you know, the guy that directed the play, by the way, is, is uh, now the showrunner for the show Riverdale. So, you know, for what it's worth. Uh, and also I feel like, so if I feel like if I stop, I'm afraid I'll lose it. You know, I'll lose the fastball. I'll lose the thing. And if I stop completely, I just, you know, I, I don't know what else I would do. And I would just die. I don't know. So it's almost like a fear. That is definitely what happened to me with going to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Serious. I stopped and then it was like, I never went back. Um, So I hear you. Um, And also I would never have guessed you were a high school thespian. Really? Oh yeah. No. What did you think? I played like lacrosse or something? (laughs) Definitely not. I think I sort of pictured you hanging out with like the kids who maybe had guitars and, uh, you were like cool. Like no, a, I was like, not cool. But like in an alternative way. No, I was not cool. I did I did hang out with the kids who played guitar. I played guitars a little bit, but I was not in any reality in high school was I cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's that's not that's not a thing <laughs> that happened. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you about um, is the whole publication thing, right? Because we published your you, you yours came out I think a year before mine, your first book. So how was that for you when it happened? Like, what, what did you think about, um, you know, because obviously it's a big fucking deal to get a novel published by a major publisher. And, uh, but it's, it's, after it happens, it's different than what you think before, right? So I, I'm just curious what your thoughts were and if anything changed for you in that process. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um it's fine. I mean, this was so long ago, so it's, it's hard to remember exactly, but I do know that, you know, like all writers who are just kind of writing in the dark and don't have any guarantee of publication, you know, like when we're aspiring, when we're young, when we're honing our craft, you do sort of imagine like, okay, one day, if I get to the other side of the fence, my life is going to be entirely different. And I do not think that is what happened. I mean, I think, um, (laughs) 
I think I was still me. I was still having all the same thoughts. It was just kind of like, now I also had people like telling me what they thought of my writing, which is not, which was not good for me. That was not a good thing for me. No, no. It's never been. No, Goodreads is you awful. Know? It's Goodreads is an evil thing. It's it's bad. I yeah, can go on there. Yeah. yeah, and and so are comment sections. And you know, over time, I've learned not to read them. But of course, back then, I mean, I was in my twenties when my first one came out. I was so vulnerable, and um, I don't think I realized that the change that was going to happen wasn't going to be entirely positive. I mean, you, you imagine, you fantasize when you're a young writer about what it's going to be like on the other side. You don't imagine being insulted. You don't imagine being ignored, but those are things that, (laughs) those are very real things that happen. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I mean, I think, you know, I feel so super lucky that I've been able to publish my work and um, I mean, it's such an amazing life and I, yeah, it's an incredible privilege. But, you know, as far as I, I think, okay, you know what? I think that a lot of people imagine anything that they're aspiring to or any change that they wish they could make that on the other side of it, it, it will be, you know, nirvana. And it's just never true, right? It's, it's always true. a mixed bag. You're still you. You're still, you still have to deal with your own mind. The way that I thought of it, even at the time, is that I felt like when you're trying to get it done, you're walking down this long hallway to the door, you know, that you think is the door to the club where all the cool people are. And you walk down the hallway and you walk down the hallway and you walk down the hallway and at last you're at the door and you open the door and it's just another fucking hallway. You know, (laughs) that's that's all that it is. And you're still and you're still a thespian. (laughs) Right. Um, and then the reviews and all that stuff are, you know, it's, you're just very vulnerable when you're throwing stuff out there, especially like, you know, fiction writing is entirely your call. It's your world. It's, it's your choice. Everything that happens in, in a, a novel is your choice. It's not anybody else's, which is another reason why I like novels because I have control over everything. It's not, I don't, I don't like, I'm not a collaborative person creatively that much. I, I can't, I'm too, I'm selfish in that way. I'm the same. Um, I I think the most collaborative creative work I've ever done was probably the weaklings. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I mean, I don't like to collaborate um, either. I, I, and so it is, you know, when you do start getting reviewed or your work gets commented on in any way, it's, it's an enormous intrusion because you're like, how do you know? You haven't been living with this work, you know, (laughs) as long as I have, you don't know what's going on. And it's, um, it can sometimes be uh, also like a real reality check. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, not a reality check I want. No, no. Uh, I don't like and I've been very, check. very, I've been very fortunate in that regard. And, and uh, you know, people are very nice in the comments on my, on my Substack. Of course, I, you have to pay to leave a comment on my Substack. So uh, that's nice. But um, no, but I've, I have a lovely community that's there. Um, one time somebody you did do. pay $5. dollars you have yeah. the nicest readers because some of them came over to my Substack when you posted one of my essays. And yeah, yeah they, I told you this, you have, I mean, I, I, they're probably the same people who are listening. So hello, you are all the nicest, <laughs> loveliest people. They are the nicest, but somebody once did sign up and pay like $5 to insult me in the comments of my, of my Substack, And I was like, you think that's going to bother me? You just gave me five bucks, you dipshit, you know? <laughs> Laughing all the way to the bank mm-hmm. with your five dollars. I'm gonna buy three quarters of a beer with this. Ha <laughs> Shows you know, says you. Um so okay, so the the 
actually, this is a good time to take a short break because we have to take short breaks on this podcast. We'll be right back with Diana Speckler. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. It's January, it's 2024, it's a new year, and I knew people head into the new year saying, new year, new you, I'm going to make changes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go on this diet, I'm going to go to the gym more, stuff like that. You know, around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we're already doing right. Maybe you finally organize one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you want to actually eat breakfast too. You know what helps find your strengths? Therapy. A good therapist can help you ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. You know, I've been in my day, I've been to a bunch of different therapists and it's very useful, especially if you have like a singular issue that you want to deal with or you want to address. Maybe it's something you want to change about yourself. Maybe you're depressed about something. Maybe you want to talk through problems you're having with your job or your marriage or your kids or your parents or whatever. It's very, very useful to go into therapy. And, you know, I've done this and I've done it with BetterHelp. So, um, and BetterHelp was great because the one thing about therapy is finding a therapist is often complicated. It's hard. You have to go in the network and you have to make calls and you have to do... BetterHelp, you don't have to do anything like that. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch anytime for no additional charge. And it's fast, you know, because sometimes if you're like in crisis or you really just want to talk to somebody, you don't want to wait around for weeks and weeks. You want to do it when you're in the mindset to do it. So BetterHelp is fantastic for that. So celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Greg today. Get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. 
I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Diana Speckler. Very short break. Um, you, We were talking a little bit about thespian tendencies. Um so you you did this the moth story contest a bunch of times and you're right you won like a bunch of these you're like the Bill Belichick of the moth uh, story thing um, just a lot of rings you know rings with a Z um, but uh, and I don't think I ever maybe I watched one of them but I never went because I was up here by then and I could never do anything tell tell everybody what moth is and what you you know yeah. What you were- so the moth, it, the moth. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but because the podcast is so popular, but um, the moth is live storytelling, and you tell true stories from your life. You get five minutes. The, well, in the, you, there are slams, which are competitions. Um, you go to whatever the venue is. You put your name in what they call the hat. If your name gets called, you get to get up and tell a story on the theme of that night, and then you're judged by audience members. And um, yeah, I mean, when I discovered it, I, I fell really hard for it and and got super addicted and was going all the time. This is, you know, back some years now, I don't do it as frequently anymore, but like it is a lot of fun. Yeah, I like what's nice. I think the hardest thing about writing a novel in terms of the audience is that the time the interval between when you write it and when you hear feedback from it is so vast that it it you know people might have a comment you know i'm still commenting on shit that's 300 years old you know the person's long dead and doesn't care what i think whereas something like that is immediate you know if if you're up there and you're telling a story and it's funny and people are either laughing or they're not so you know right away uh if you're if you're (laughs) if you're doing well or if it's going to bomb a thousand percent. Yeah. And you're, you just described it perfectly. Um, they will, you know, there's, there's always the possibility they'll be eating out of your hand and it's the most amazing feeling in the world. And then there's the possibility that you're going to say something you thought was funny and there will be silence and, you know, that's horrifying. But yeah, I mean, that immediate feedback, I actually think was really good for my writing too, because, um, you get a sense d- doing live storytelling of what aspects of you people connect to and what, what aspects of you people do not connect to. <laughs> and I think that is useful in life and in writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm usually, my sense of that is usually pretty good, but not always. I'm not, it's not a hundred percent. I mean, the one, the one thing I am collaborative with is the the live YouTube show I do with my friend, Stephanie Koff, who goes by LB on the show. And uh, that's always fun. Um, And we have an audience for that, but the audience is like, you know, commenting on the side. So I can see it, but I can't really see it. But if she's not there, I I, I don't, I don't know what's, it's like the scene in, in, um, you know, in Wayne's world where Wayne leaves and Garth is like, I don't know what to do. It's like, I feel totally like that. Whereas if I was on stage, I wouldn't, you know, get that way at all. Um, you, You don't have stage fright, right? You just go up there and you're cool. 
I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's it's terrifying, but I think I got pretty addicted to that terror because the terror feels, I mean, the anxiety also feels like excitement and, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a wild high that, um, so of course, like the moments before you go on stage are just absolutely terrifying and your heart's beating out of your chest. And then maybe a minute into the story, it's like, okay, we're just talking, you know, yeah. I'm just telling you guys a story and then it's fun. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid of being on stage and do you want to hear, you want to hear a story? This would be my, like a moth story, but it's not a good moth yeah. story actually. So when I was in eighth grade, again, I was in the plays that we, we did a musical. Uh, I think it was called DuckTales and Bobby Socks. I was in seventh grade and in middle school in New Jersey, it was seventh grade and eighth grade. And that was it. There was two grades. Um, everybody in the town went to the same school. So I was the character I played was like this Elvis Presley-esque rock guy. Okay. And, uh, you know, you sang some songs, you did this, whatever. So um, when the costumes came, they gave me my costume and it was this skin tight gold lame, you know, kind of Elvis outfit, but it was, you know, it was very skin tight and it was ridiculous and awful and uh, embarrassing. And, at that time, it wasn't like, hey, come to the play if you want to buy a ticket and come. It's like the entire school was forced to go to see the play and 90% of them did not want to be there. And so, you know, I came out on stage in this ridiculous thing, knowing full well that everybody would laugh at me, which they did. And, uh, you know, but I just stayed in character and kind of owned it. And, you know, after that, there's literally nothing that can be more embarrassing than that. Like I've already done the thing that everybody's afraid of. So I know. bet you rocked that costume. No, nah, I don't know if I, I don't know. I think I was, <laughs> I would certainly, if I look back on it now, I, I, I was less, I, I thought I was overweight and I wasn't, I am now, but the, <laughs> I would have been okay. It wasn't like I was 1976 fat Elvis or anything, you know, but uh, it was, uh, yeah. Well, and we're all so body conscious at that age anyway. Yes. Um, no, it was. Yeah. So that, that is kind of a nightmare. But that's interesting that you think of that as your before and after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then it you're is. comfortable. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Good luck trying to come up with something. That's like, and I was like tw 13, 12, you know, it's, that's it. Um, okay. Yeah, I, 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 I was one time talking to, I used to, uh, well, and I'm hoping to get back into it, but I, I've on and off through the years taught creative writing to, um, post nine 11 veterans. Oh, cool. And okay. I know. And I was talking to one of them about storytelling and I said, you know, after, after my first few times telling a story, I realized like what some similar to what you were saying, like nothing could scare me. And he said, I felt that way after the first time someone held a gun to my head and yeah. I was humbled. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Once that happens. Yeah, exactly. What can, you know, I don't think someone's going to hold a gun to my head on stage. Um, but I don't know, you know, Hopefully not. The, in the Trump era, you know, anything can happen. Um, anything can happen. So I want to talk about your, your traveling because, um, I'm jealous that you, you, you know, a little bit that you traveled so much and you write about it and you write about it for magazines and now you're writing about it on the Substack. And you have a lot of experiences abroad. Um, and I just want to talk about that a bunch now because it's it's interesting to me. Um, 
so the first, it, I feel like Mexico was a, a place that you spent a lot of time in, or maybe it was just, I was aware of you living there or being there for sort of an inordinate amount of time um, relative to anything. I don't know. Um, so why did you go to Mexico? What What is it about Mexico specifically that drew you there? Um, what's it like? Uh, what's the allure? Yeah. I wound up living there for five years, actually, or close to that, um, yeah. right after I left New York. So what happened was I, I actually did a, a writing residency, like an artist, international artist residency um, on Lake Chapala, which is in central Mexico. It's near Guadalajara. And I was just there for a month and totally fell in love with it and also fell in love with a, a, a guy. But that's another story. I mean. I, but that is, you know, I think it at first what what drew me, I mean, to, to stay longer was yeah. the guy. But I think in retrospect, I don't know if I'm rewriting history, but I, I think he was more like an embodiment of the place. And it was really the place that I was in love with because I wound up, you know, it didn't work out between us. And then I wound up staying for five years and moving around and living in three different parts of Mexico and, and learning Spanish and making wonderful friends and having just incredible experiences. So, but what draws me to Mexico? Let's see. I mean, well, you went I mean there, there's I guess, so much. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love it. I love the country. I love the culture. I love the way people help each other there. And um, I love the kindness, the politeness, the food, the weather. There's a lot to love. Yeah. Um, and it has, you know, the, it, it's sneaky, cool literary history too, I think, in Mexico, like more than people realize. I th you know, Bolaño is Chilean, but he was in Mexico City for most of the time that he was active. So I always associate Mexico with him. and. Uh, you know, he's awesome. So for sure. There's a lot of amazing, I mean, there's an amazing literary history all over you know, South America, Latin yeah. America, South America. And so, um, I, unfortunately my Spanish never got to the point where I could read without translation. I mean, I can read, but if I were to pick up a novel in Spanish, it would take me like a year to get through it. So yeah, that's I, it's good that you picked up enough to talk. Like, yeah, I've lost. I took French in high school, and it's just all gone now. It's just completely, it's completely gone. So, thinking about travel and travel writing, and I think this comes out in your, in your work, and certainly in the essays on the on the dispatch. Um, you wrote about romance, and there's this not romance with the guy in Mexico, but romance with Mexico and the and what he embodies and all of that kind of stuff, and um, you know finding something new. And I feel like my sense of you or the you that's presented through the pieces there is that you're, you're a seeker, right? You're like looking for stuff. You, you want to find something that's, I think you say it in the thing that's perfection that you, obviously we never get to perfection, but you want to, you know, you want to make sure that you look as, as much as you possibly can. So um, is that true? Like what, that's the sense I get anyway. You know, I, it's interesting. I was actually just thinking recently about seekers and whether or not I'm a seeker. Because when I think of seek, the word seeker, I think I'm thinking about people seeking a spiritual experience, which yeah. I don't know that I am. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. But I do feel like I am constantly in search of a feeling I've never had or of an old feeling with the volume turned up, maybe. Yeah. I really do seek intensity, yeah. I think. And and travel has given me that for sure. Yeah, like a or a song that you heard as a child 
and haven't heard since. And then you hear it again and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Seeker's the wrong word. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean? It's not, oh my God, the God is here or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't even know why I'm laughing. So you've been all over the place and I, I wanted to ask about places that you like, you know, where have you been? What are your favorite places? What are your not favorite places? Um, so start wherever you want. I, to be honest, have, have liked everywhere that I've been. I mean, that includes like weird little small towns in Texas where I now live. I, there's, I just think there's something pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, people are always asking me for travel tips because I travel so much. And I'm always, so I always just say like, okay, are you looking, do you want to see good art? Do you want the beach? Do you want, you know, what are, do you, are you a, you know, a food person? Um, like what kind of traveling are you looking for? But yeah, I mean, I, I really like everywhere. I do, I would say that um, I'm most drawn to Latin America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, I think especially once I learned Spanish or felt comfortable enough in Spanish that I could get around, it was so exciting to me. I just, you know, I, I saw once I learned the language, how it opens doors and, you know, people open up to you more, you get more of the experience of the locals. And then once I saw that, that, that reality, which I hadn't anticipated, I just wanted to go everywhere. I wanted to go to all the Spanish speaking countries and travel around. And, um, so I've done quite a bit of that. How many did you hit? Oh, I don't know. I've never counted countries to me. No, I mean, in like South America, grass. did you go to Paraguay? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But, um, yeah, you know, the country counters to me are sort of like the people who count how many sexual partners they've had. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I've just never done it. I don't do the like thumbtacks on the wall map, but let's see. I have, so I, I mean, okay. I've spent a lot of time in Mexico, Guatemala, Guatemala is like, I, I think, um, like an underappreciated, uh, tourist destination. Um, I loved Panama, Argentina, uh, where else? I don't know. I've been to a lot of them. Okay. Have you been to Paraguay? Yeah. No. Okay. And I've not been to Uruguay either. Yeah. Um, and there's a book called, um, travels with my aunt by Graham Greene. Did you read that? No. Okay. Graham Greene writes lots of different things, but you know, spy novels and, and I, he wrote it in, I think 1968, 69. So it's relatively late. And I think you could get away with more because the mores of the times had changed. And the, it's funny as shit. And uh, even though it's called Travels of the Most Boring Title, but it's it's just a an amazing book. But they wind up in Paraguay. And uh, it just made it seem really cool to go there. That's all. It was like the Wait, last And the place. title is Travels with My Aunt? Yes. Or aunt. That is, that to me, that, I don't think that's a boring title. I think that's hilarious. Yeah. It's, the book is amazing. It's just, I love Graham okay. Greene anyway, but it's like, yeah. it's different than the other books. But I, since then I've, I've thought about, oh, it might be cool to go to Paraguay. There's always little cultural things about any place that you go to that, you know, you can find and, and, you know, mine the interestingness out of, you know, absolutely. Just like the towns in upstate New York, like each one has something in it that's, you know, interesting historically or um, something like that. Like the, when we first moved up here, we lived in Highland 
and um, near Lily Lake. Um, and there was a mountain there. And that place was first settled, um, you know, white people settled by this woman named, I think it was J- Jemima Wilkinson, um, who came from maybe Rhode Island, but it was like a free love cult in like 17 something. And uh, that's what they did. And they wanted to go to Illinois, but they it was too far. So they just named the tiny little mountain, Illinois Mountain. And uh, and you can go to the graveyard, which is like, you know, 300 years old or something. And it's, and it's just like, I could walk there from my house, you know. In, the up, free upstate. love cult. I'm, there's and nothing captures my imagination more than than like these, you know, utopian societies. Yeah. And yeah. I saw cult. a picture of her and it's a, must have been a rough free love cult. That's all I'm saying. No, she didn't look like somebody that would be in a free love cult. Um, but the point being that you just never know. Where you Maybe are. she doesn't look like someone you would want to be in your free love cult. Is that more accurate? I think that's more accurate. No, she looks like everybody else looked at that time. It's just, you know, funny. But you just don't know. You never know or, you know, what you're going to encounter uh, in the, in this various places. I wrote, uh, in fact, before Substack uh, came and, and Twitter came and people started reading what I wrote. By far the most views I ever had on anything was a piece at the on the back page of Hudson Valley Magazine, um, where I, Highland is also called the town of Lloyd, and no one knows why, and it's just a stupid name. And I proposed changing the name to something cooler. Um, you know, it was called a Lloyd by any other name, and um, Free Love New York. That is was, what I came up. That with. was going to be the name of the town. Free Love, Free Love New York. Who wouldn't want to go oh. there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that was the thing I wrote that the most people read until, you know, for a long time, actually. So who were you proposing this to the board of tourism or? I don't even know. You know, the universe. Okay. Not, I, I don't think it was like a formal proposal. I didn't. It wasn't formal. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's a great idea. You know, if you want people to come, you got to, you know, make it a better name. You know, and everything is in a name. It's, it's, it's very important. So. I like to go abroad. Uh, I don't. I go to Berlin every year, but that's really all that I go because I go there for work. But it's fun when you're there because people come from all over, and I get to talk to people from different countries about what's going on in their country and perceptions of United States from in wherever in Poland and you know uh, wherever else, Finland, etc. Uh, so. You know, after the Trump election, it was weird to go there. You know, people looked at us like we were like, what are you doing? You know, um, so I'm curious in your recent travels, and I don't know where you've been recently, but what are the perceptions of America that people have now and have it, have they changed at all? You know, you're right that during the Trump years, everyone, I, I found not necessarily that I was being judged automatically. Yeah. But everybody wanted to talk about it. And I think one of the things that has surprised me about traveling and and also kind of embarrassed me is how aware the rest of the world is of our politics. We don't know anything about what's going on in a lot, you know, many other, most other countries and um, everyone knows what's going on here. And so people really wanted to engage me. I mean, sometimes they felt negative toward me. Other times they were just curious. Other times, I I would say most of the time, and this is just, you know, human nature in general, people just wanted to tell me all their opinions about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So what was shocking to me was that I did encounter Trump supporters in other countries. Yeah. What, which countries? Or was it just a mix like everywhere and there were a couple? Okay. I was in a hot tub in <laughs> Colombia. Okay. And a guy in Spanish, we we're speaking Spanish, started telling me how much he admired Trump. And um, I gave him an earful. I mean, this was, this was in the, let's see, this was around 2019, I would say. Okay. So we were really, we were really in it. We were in the soup. You were in the hot tub. We were in yeah. the soup. Yeah. And I, I told him, I, I told him that's very offensive. <laughs> How did he react? <laughs> um, he and his, he, uh, he and his wife, I think, pretty much got out of the hot tub shortly after. Yeah. I wasn't polite. Yeah. Good. You know, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I usually, I, I don't argue. I just let people talk. I, you know, and sometimes it's, that is, a, that is an amazing quality that I do not possess. <laughs> well, cause I'm curious. And a lot of times I'm like, when am I ever going to talk to somebody like this in my day to day life? I don't encounter people. Even I just came back from Florida and people, are always want to inject their right-wing bullshit politics into every transaction. Um, and it's just interesting to see how they come at it and what what dog whistle things they say to let it be known who they are. Like we had a guy that was talking about like some social media platform he was trying to create. And he's like, and you know, it'll be, it'll be, we're, we're big First Amendment guys. So it won't be, you know, all this moderation and da, da, da. It'll be free speech, free speech. And I'm like, okay, so you're a Nazi. Great. Thank you. Glad to know. Uh, Isn't it crazy that they've they've been able to sort of appropriate things that you know are really wonderful about this country? Yeah, <laughs> like like that. Like they have made free speech into this disgusting thing. <laughs> well, they don't understand it. It's not you know exactly. It, it's exactly. Not, the 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 free speech doesn't mean speech without consequences. You know, you exactly. can say whatever you want, but if you're gonna talk about being a Nazi, then we're going to call you a Nazi and hate you. And right. uh, that's just, that's our right. That's, that's us right. expressing our first amendment rights. So, yes. you know, but no, I had people that, well, the Russians all like Trump, of course, obviously. And sometimes you'd find a, a stray um, Eastern European who was pretty, you know, the coin world tends to be uh, lean conservative anyway, if not full on reactionary or monarchist or whatever. Um, so it's an interesting, you get some interesting perspectives from people for sure. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about traveling is, um, is getting people's perspectives. And um, I agree with you. It is, it is, it is fun to listen to people talk. I think where I have trouble is when, you know, they start to be pro Trump or something like that. And then it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just afraid that I, once I start talking, I won't, stop and it'll be bad because they might be packing heat you know i don't know it's florida yeah. you can't can't mess around and uh whatever they're they're probably covid's going to get them anyway so um so probably not you know backs and all this stuff so it, <laughs> it's really fine so now um we were talking a little bit before we turned the recorder on about uh the future of the country and i i'm i'm pretty confident biden is going to win and people listening to this know that i'm confident but we still you know we do have to think about what might happen if he doesn't, because a lot of things could happen that are black swan events, something could happen to him, 
um, he could he could die in some way. He could be assassinated, you know, or something. You know, God forbid. Uh, so we have to prepare ourselves, or at least make contingency plans in the event that Trump does win and decide to, you know, become a dictator as he said he's going to be, in the manner of Hitler, who he openly admires. Um, which is which is crazy, you know, that we're at this at this stage and thing. So um, if we have to flee, where do we go? What, what are the best countries to live? It depends how off the grid you want to go. I mean, you know, people, I, I guess the cliche is Canada, but Canada's cold. I mean, we have Mexico, we have Mexico just as close and it's, <laughs> and it's so lovely and warm. Um, Canada's wonderful. I don't mean to, to. I have a lot of very lovely Canadian listeners, by the way. So shout out out to the Canadians. The problem is if if the United States turns fascist, Canada is not safe. That's just how it is. Oh, tell me more. Yeah. No, there's a huge right wing, you know, insurgency there in Alberta and other places that's just waiting for the right, you know, opportunity to. And if that uh, Holyev guy becomes prime minister, it's really, it's really a problem. And Trudeau is not, you know, people are, tired of him because he's been there a long time so it's not it's uh something bad could happen there too i guess fascist so i remember the whole thing with the truckers Mm -hmm. um but i i don't think i knew i don't i i don't know much else about a fascist movement there i've always thought of canadians as quite level-headed they are and so yeah except for for this small pocket of you know fascists okay so i didn't know that it was a thing i mean i knew about the truckers but i didn't know i mean is this a real threat um yeah i mean it's not it's there are uh you know trudeau's the prime minister maybe he wins again maybe he doesn't this the guy that's running against him is uh pierre poliev is kind of trumpy you know less less brash but definitely uh you know with fascist tendencies and Alberta, um, which is basically Texas, but in Canada, because that's where the oil fields are, and it's very much an oil culture and uh, stuff like that. Um, the I forget what it's called. The person that's in, in charge of the province um, is also wackadoodle. Uh, and there's been talk of Alberta seceding from Canada, um, which is crazy because it would be this little landlocked place. And kind of like Texas, the the cities in Alberta, Edmonton and Calgary are really cool and not fast, you know, so it's, it, 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 it's similar to what's happening here in a lot of ways, I think, but the parliamentary system is, you know, it's complicated in a way. One of the uh, people bitch and moan about the third part, uh, you know, the third, uh, the two party system. But one of the nice things about it is uh, every four years we have an election and if we don't like you, we vote you out and you're gone, you know? Um, ideally, ideally, right. You can, you can try to stay, but it's not happening. Um Yeah. It so, almost happened. But. Yeah, it did. Um, <laughs> but in the parliamentary, you know, that's Netanyahu gets back into power. That's why Britain can't figure out who the prime minister, you know, that's been a problem for now, you know, the the whole time Trump through now, for, we're three years into Biden, um, you know, Britain ha- ha- has been shifting prime ministers because it has to be somebody who's, uh, you know, from the uh, conservative party who is pro-Brexit, but isn't a complete moron. And there's, there's not that many people that fit that description uh, that can do it. So it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. So I don't know, but I yeah. think Britain's Britain's going to Labor's going to come in and, you know, the next time they have an election, it's going to be um, an ass kicking and they're going to take over. The- so, 
so to return to your question about where to go, mm-hmm. I mean, I, one thing I will say about having lived in Mexico is like the politics in Mexico are all messed up too, obviously, and everywhere. But one thing that is really nice is that you don't care in the same way that you care about American politics. So you see it when you're in other countries, you know, you can't vote in other countries and you didn't grow up in that country. And you see people getting so riled up about politics the way we all do here, but you're outside of it. And there is something really nice about that. I mean, I left for Mexico pretty much at the same time Trump did his escalator thing. Um, (laughs) It was like we, it's like we crossed paths, you know, like I was on the other escalator (laughs) going up and, um, you you were who were the trading Mexico was sending us people and we sent you to Mexico. That's yeah. Totally. I mean, it wasn't intentional. I did not go there because of politics. I had nothing to do with that. But so it was just coincidental, but I will say, I mean, I was, I was, I still am. I have been riled up since 2015. Like I can't calm down from it. But it was nice to have some distance Um, and watching everybody in Mexico get riled up about their politics. I also felt distance. And so there is something I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a great privilege to be able to reside in someone else's country and, you know, and to and to not vote and to not get involved. I mean, it's actually illegal to get involved right in Mexico. So I, I don't think it was even it would have even been legal for me to say go to a protest. Okay. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but something like that. But anyway, uh, yeah, there is something for sure about about watching it from a distance. <laughs> yeah, no, I. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's such a. um one of the problems or the challenges with it is that it's been so many years now of just, you know, assault on our, uh, on our empathy meter, on our, you know, the vigilance with which we have to watch over every goddamn thing that they're doing because they're doing stuff all the time. And you feel like if I don't keep on top of everything, uh, you know, things will fall apart and we can't have it that way. That's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. So to be able to, I get it, to be able to go somewhere and be like, yeah, whatever, uh, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. As long as it's not like, what, is it Argentina? Yeah, Argentina has that new president now who's maybe a little crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Um, but I was going to say, interesting that you mentioned Argentina. Yes, they 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 are, yeah, but they their politics have always been kind of a nightmare. Um, but this is bad. But... I was going to say, depending how off the grid we need to get, there is, you know, Argentina, Patagonia, like, um, there's a reason the Nazis all went there. I was going to say, do we want to go? You know, it's quite off the grid. And um, that's not a bad option. It's very beautiful. I'm laughing because I was going to be like, we can't go to Argentina. That's where all the Nazis are. And literally, I would go to Berlin. So it's it's totally stupid. <laughs> like, okay, I can't talk. <laughs> um, my my thinking, too, is that, you know, like in hide and seek, where the best place to hide is where the person actually counted and then left because they'll never go back there and look there. Oh, that's why Berlin is good and why Argentina would be good. So, OK, so Argentina, I would never that would never occur to me. So that's a good place to go. OK. Good. What about in Europe? Do you, you know, do you have a favorite European country? I mean, I love Italy. I guess everyone loves Italy, right? Yeah. So beautiful. Every meal you eat is perfect. The wine doesn't make you hungover. 
some for, somehow I don't know. It's like it is utopia. It's so beautiful there. I mean, they of course have their own political issues, but um, I would say that's probably my favorite. Okay, I'm but I, I I love I love pretty much everywhere I've been in Europe. I mean, Europe's just incredible. Um, I love Spain. Yeah, okay. anywhere is great. Go 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 to wherever whatever you feel drawn to. That's where you should go. I'm not I, By the way, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying in my house. I'm staying in New York. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere either yeah. anymore. Yeah. Well, you're in Texas, so that's I, I'd be more concerned about you know what happens in Texas. Yes, um, we are concerned about what's happening in Texas for sure. What's uh, what's it like on the day to day there politically? Like, is it is it very obvious when you walk around that, you know, it's a red state or is it because you're in the city? It's not like, how is it, how does it compare to like New York or Montana or other places in the States where you've lived? It does not feel like New York. I will say that. I've been, nothing feels like New York, but um, you know, I live in Dallas, so there is a lot more sanity here than there might be um, in, in non-urban places. Um, as soon as I drive out of here, out of Dallas, I start seeing the billboards for, you know, basically like the, the pro-life, mm, yeah. um, yeah. Call this number if you're pregnant, you know, they're going to like, we, we have these, those here too, by the way. And again, the yeah. bluest place that there is, I'm near Woodstock for Christ's sake. Like it's, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say yeah, you drive out of Dallas, you drive out of Austin or wherever you are, um, that's more blue. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious you're in Texas. There are also places in Texas, East Texas, for example, oh, I shouldn't even say, I should, I shouldn't like insult certain places, should I, who knows who's listening, but there, ha there are places in Texas where I have seen, con um, you know, Confederate flags and I, on yeah. people's lawns and yeah. 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 Well, I believe crossover into Arkansas and you see it, you see a lot of that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that the people who feel that way are the ones who just insist on telling us about it on their truck, on their house, on their person, you know, they don't want you to, you know, just let it be. Um, which is a shame because, you know, just like you said, it's, it's nice not to have to think about the politics all the time, you know? Um, what do you think that is psychologically? Why are they doing that? Like, what is the, the loud and proud thing? Well, I think, first of all, they are assholes. I mean, that's part of it. You know, they just are an asshole. There's an aggressiveness to it where they're, they want to, um, it's, it's bullying, really. They're bullies. And, you know, they're like, well, here's the Trump thing. What are you going to do about it? And the answer is, I don't know, laugh at you behind your back. And, um, you know, and if you're a woman, they're going to run away from you because, you know, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, when I was in college, when uh, Clinton ran against, um, I guess it was uh, Bush. It was the first Clinton election. And I think that's what it was. I don't know. I've lost track of. Yeah. 90, 92 was the first Clinton one, right? Yeah. Okay. And all of my housemates were uh, Republicans nominally. It was three of us, in the, four of us in the house, and I wasn't. And they had a sign in the in the window 
for the bush quail or whatever. And I was like, why are you putting the sign in the fucking window? This might as well be a sign saying women do not enter. Like you, you idiots. Even if you could <laughs> vote for the guy, duh, you know? And yeah, uh, they totally cock blocked you, man. Yeah, they did. So uh, <laughs> then they all went away on Labor Day weekend and I tore that fucking thing up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever weekend it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know why they do it, but they do it. It's so nasty and ugly. And also just aesthetically, it's ugly. It's not nice to look at. The MAGA hat is ugly. The flags, the designs, they're not aesthetically pleasing. Um, I, I don't get it at all. I really don't. That's a good point. They're not aesthetically pleasing. Um yeah, so I mean, if you think of Trump as like a Rorschach test, um, you know, he's a bully, right? Yeah. So I guess how we react to him says something about us. If we don't like bullies, we're going to not, we're not going to like him. If you're someone who has maybe grown up having to appease a bully, um, that might be part of what draws them to him. And then they want to imitate him because it's safer to yeah. be with the bully than against the bully. Right. Yeah. Based on every movie I've seen where they're, you know, <laughs> with those kids fighting the, the, uh, I Biff in back to the future, that character apparently is based on Trump. I mean, for real. Wait, what do you mean? I mean, when they wrote the part, they were thinking of him. He looks like him. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so one of the things is the, with these, the MAGA people is that the sort of artlessness, there's a, if there's one quality that they all have other than asshole or, you know, it's artlessness. They don't, you know, their art sucks. They, there is no art. The, their musicians are terrible. The, the, the aesthetically, it looks like shit. Like it's just bad in that way. Uh, they don't have the, the artistic sensibility and so I thought this is a good this is a good place to end because you've written about this a lot, um, and I think you think about it a lot in general. Um, on one of the pieces on dispatches from the road, you wrote about seeing um, the kiss. The the uh, what's his name? The guy that Clint. Clint. It is Clint. Okay, um, and how you're moved by it and and all this. And I was thinking about that, and because a lot of people I think never feel that that kind of that intense being moved to tears by artwork or a song or a poem or something like that. Um, so I wanted to ask what, you know, name some things, some pieces of art of any format that give you like the Stondahl effect as it's called. Oh, what is that? I don't, I don't, I've never heard that. Oh, that's the name. I think Stondahl thought, you know, he saw, I forget what, he saw a piece of art and started crying and it, you know, that's what it is. It's the, 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 the effect of the art just reducing you to tears. Like, for example, I, um, there's a John Donne poem, Valediction Forbidding Morning, and I can't not cry when the poem is read. Like I can't not, when I taught creative writing it, uh, I did that for like three semesters at Manhattanville. I had somebody read it out loud and one of my students who couldn't even read well, and I was crying at the end and the kids all thought I was insane. Um, but you know, I can't, it's, it's too power. The, the, whatever, the artistry is too much for me. So, um, are you, I feel that way about the end of the lover by Marguerite Duras. Like 
I could open to the last page and read it anytime and burst into tears. Even thinking about it makes me want to cry. Okay. Um, I haven't read that. Okay. I'm going to write this down. But, um, you know, I, I, I had the experience. I, um, one of the, I think the first time I had the experience with visual art, the Stendhal effect, um, was when I was about 20 and I saw some Picassos in person. And, you know, of course you see all these, you see this art in textbooks and then the first time you actually see it. I mean, to me, it's so moving. Um, And when I was in Barcelona, maybe five years ago there, you know, there's a Picasso museum there. And I, I was curious if I was going to have the same reaction. And I did, I mean, it really moved me. Um, but, um, you know, I was in, uh, El Paso, um, on the, on the border during COVID writing a story about the muralists there. And they do, you know, they're, they're basically doing fine art on the walls and it's incredible. And it's in the tradition of, Mexican muralism and then, you know, later Chicano muralism in the United States. And, you know, a lot of these murals are, are political and, and I'm honestly, those move me to tears. Anybody who wants to go see good art should go to El Paso and, and look at the murals. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but I was, I was moved to tears by several of those. Uh, recently, you know, there's that, that singer, Zach Bryan, who's really popular now, mm-hmm. um, who sings something in the orange. Uh, he's so good. I've been listening to that a lot. And that, that gives me that feeling. Yeah. I like to feel it's such a good, if I'm in the mood, I'm not always in the mood, but if I'm in the mood, it's just a good, like, yeah. Well, it's, it's quite intense. Yeah. So yeah, you have to sort of be prepared for it because it's going to change your day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to be, yeah, I have to be in the mood or in the right frame of mind, I suppose. You know, there's certain, it's like I won't listen to like Rosalita by Springsteen unless I, you know, it's a day for it. You know, I can't just put, I don't want to hear that randomly because I also don't want right. to dilute its power. You know, I, it, there's a sense if I, if you go to the well too often, it it might, you know, dry up the intensity and stuff like that, but maybe. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm so guilty of that. If I find a song that does that for me, I'll listen to it until I hate it. (laughs) Just over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's amazing to me, like the poems in particular that like these just, you know, squiggles on a page that are like what, 400 years old, something like that still have the power to do that. Um, Yeah. When I went to the British Museum, there's a room in there where they have the no- people's notebooks, stuff like that. So, you, like, they had like John Milton's notebook was there, and I was like, oh, it was almost like it was there was like power emanating from it, like the orb that Trump touched in Saudi Arabia. Felt like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. just like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know if Milton would have liked uh, MBS so much. <laughs> the comparison, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, I. I uh, I don't know. I haven't seen any. I don't think it's ever happened to me with art. I've been surprised about things. You, what did you think when you saw the Mona Lisa for the first time? How was it different than what you thought? Um, it was I didn't. 
I I, I remember thinking, oh, this is cool, but not feeling. And first of all, it's so crowded around the Mona Lisa. It's, it's, you're not, there's really no room to have, you know, an experience like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's very cool to see, but I I don't think I felt that, that thing. Too many people around it, I guess. Yeah. You'd have to be. I don't know, up close. It's smaller than I thought, and she's smirkier than I thought. Like, it's there's a kind of a knowing, um, I don't know. It's not even the smile. It's like a a wink-wink kind of thing going on with that. Uh, the Sistine Chapel, I had the opposite reaction to, by the way. I had a visceral um, disgust to it. Like, I felt like it was so, un- the room was so uncomfortable, and the Vatican is so disgusting uh, just, you know, what it represents through the years and all this stuff. And I could feel like, like he was just, a pr- it was like he was in prison there and he passed the time painting this thing, but I could feel it there. You know, I felt like they that's, just wanted to just. That's super interesting. I mean, and, and I think, um, well then, you know, we could, we could easily segue if we had time into a discussion about being able to separate, well, in that case, separating the place from the art or, mm-hmm. but I was going to say separating the art from the artist, which I love talking about that. I could, I could never get sick of talking about that. To me, that is so interesting. Um, especially since me too, like what we have found out about so many people who are making things that we love. Okay, so let's talk about that because I want to hear what you have to say about it. No, I that because also it's interesting to me too because it's it's yeah there are these people that come out and it's like, um, my God, I was listening to Billie Jean the other day. It came on my mix and I hadn't heard it in a long time and really listened to the words. There's a lot in there where it's like, Mama says, "Don't do it. Be careful. Don't go there. Be careful who you you know." It's like the whole fucking song is a warning from his mom not to do whatever it is he did. It's kind of oh. creepy to hear it now in this it, now knowing now what we know. Um, but what are your thoughts on it? Like, can you separate art from the artist, especially when it's somebody like Woody Allen, who's in all the movies and the movies are in many ways, extensions of his own, you know, I have not tried to watch a Woody Allen movie since, you know, yeah. the fall of Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, I did love Manhattan, you know, when I saw it long ago, but, um, and, and other movies of his as well. Um, Annie Hall yeah, and yeah. Hannah and her sisters. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I don't know what would happen, but that's kind of been my experience is that it's been a surprise to me when I can do it and when I can't. And I, I wonder if it's a matter of severity. Like I cannot like Michael Jackson. I cannot ever since seeing the documentary, um, and, and learning that he really, his, his life was sort of dedicated to being a predator. I, I can't, I can't hear his music without having a visceral reaction. Um, for me, it has depended. Um, and so I, I found that interesting. Like I, I can't, I guess I don't 100% separate it. And I think, I think part of it for me is like after me too, especially it was such a reminder that pretty much everyone is guilty of something. And, um, if we're really gonna, if we're gonna look into it and find the thing and then let that ruin the art for it, I mean, it's, it's a slippery slope, right? Right. Um, especially when you go backwards and you try to apply, you know, 2023 or 2024 morality on something from 1820 or something, 
Exactly. Like, yeah, that's not fair, you know? No, it's it's not. And I, I never liked that people did that with literature, even, you know, yeah. before Me Too. Um, because of course it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to, um, raise yourself above the ideas of the time. So it, it's a lot to demand yeah. of, of writers of your. Yeah, I think so. I'm still, I feel like Hemingway was one of the first cancellations and I, I don't, I don't like canceling Hemingway. I think Hemingway is awesome. I love Hemingway. Yeah. <laughs> and I know Hemingway didn't like women, neither did Picasso. Yeah. Not, not, you know. not in the, yeah, it, it's, but I think part of it too, is I think it's the kind of art it's the cut, like if with Michael Jackson, you're hearing his voice, like literally hearing his voice. So you can't. Oh, that's it. interesting. You know, whereas if I like Chinatown is one of the best movies ever made to the top three for me, but, and Roman Polanski is, you know, awful. Uh, and but, I love Rosemary's baby. Yes. Another great one. Yeah. Right? But, and he's, and he was truly predatory. Yeah. But. He's yes. not in the, I guess he is in Chinatown briefly, but it's not, it's easier to forget when the movie isn't about that. And he's that not is in a it. Really good, that is a really good point. So there might be something there. Um, however, I still like Louis C.K. He's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and when I see him, I am thinking about, you know, him exposing himself. I think about it, but I still think he's funny. I think it's the comedians have it the hardest. I would hate to be a comedian now. I mean, because you're you're supposed to push the boundaries, but the boundaries are so perilous now. They're much more perilous than they were ever before. Um, you know, you, there's so many things you can't say uh, if you're trying to be not, you know, whatever, polite or or considerate or you know, whatever the, the term is. And if you're a comedian, almost the job entails not doing that. So it's very interesting to me how people draw the line and, um, and stuff like that. And a lot of it isn't successful anymore. Okay. So, so I'm going to ask you a question Uh oh. as an artist, do you think if people knew the worst things about you, they would still like your work? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I you mean my my novels? I don't know whatever, my artistic whatever. work. Then then yeah. I mean, so few people like it that it's a mood. It's a mood. okay. Well, any work that you no I no mean, I'm I, I'm trying to dodge the question in a diplomatic author. way. Uh, yeah, I th- I don't know. I I'm not that awful. I think, but uh, I have my awful. I have my awfulness like everybody else. But um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, what, yeah, what about- and I don't know either. And I think that's a question that I've had a lot during these years is like, um, I don't know. I think back on things that I've said to people that were insensitive, um, times I've behaved in ways that I wouldn't anymore. And I think like, I don't know, what if somebody decided to tell on me? Yeah, I have that. I have that. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. Like I lose my temper a lot. I get frustrated a lot. I, I, to, to, as a valve for anger, I just, you know, yell and scream and say things I shouldn't say, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes people don't know if I'm joking or not, you know, cause my, you, my sense of humor is dry. Like if I were at a party, I might say something that I'm clearly joking about, but I say it in such a way that it's not obvious that I'm joking that's part of the joke and it drives my wife nuts 
she hates when I do this because it's like, she's like but, it, but in you. New York, I feel like people get it right more so than elsewhere. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, you know, you might go to the party and say something about making America great or whatever, you know, just to, um, I, but I, I don't think I would even do that. Uh, I can't think of an example now, but yeah, but I don't know, but I don't have, you know, like Matt Lauer had the little button in his, in his office there where he could lock right, the door. Right. I yeah. don't have that kind of thing going on. You know, I'm not, um, no, thankfully, you know, thankfully, um, Louis CK did a bit about, uh, you know, ped- pedophilia on SNL one time in his opening monologue where he was like, uh, you know, it must be really great because look at all the shit you have to deal with. if You get caught, but people keep doing it. So it must be awesome. But so that was his whole <laughs> oh thing. God. It's so bad. Uh, <laughs> That's pushing the envelope, you know? I mean, I, I that was yeah. probably before he got before. exposed or exposing. It was right before. And yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but and it was, I wasn't laughing about it. It was it's uncomfortable, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Their job is to push the envelope, you know? Right. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of who else has been canceled in my mind. I don't like that word, but who else's art or work I now look at differently knowing, you know, kind of who they are. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I, I don't like when people turn out to be MAGAs. Like I don't, David Mamet turned out to be kind of MAGA. Orson Scott Card turned out to be kind of bad. And, oh, really? That's so random. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know if he's MAGA, but his, you know, like, not great. I can't remember even the yeah. exact thing, but I think maybe not. Uh, maybe it's homophobic. I don't want to. I don't want to say he's something that he isn't, but it, there, there's questionable stuff, um, and it's weird when it happens. But it does happen if you go back in the, um, you know, in the 20s and go into the 30s with the stuff as the fascists are coming into power. You know, many of the of the writers or most of them were obviously liberals and or or communists because that was that side of things. And the theoretical piece of communism is that, you know, hey, maybe we should just like pool resources and help each other, which is great. And I think lots of empathic people get get behind that idea. And artists are by nature empathic. So uh, that's why that was popular. It wasn't popular because Stalin was killing people. People didn't know right. that in the 30s yet. Um, right to the degree that they, that they learned it later. But you had people that were just fascists. Ezra Pound was a fascist, you know, John Dos Passos was, you know, on the other side of the thing and you don't, why? I don't know. know, What makes somebody uh, that way? I don't know. Right. I think that uh, sometimes when I, I learn stuff like that, I also wonder if there were conversations happening back then that we just don't have access to now. And like, so we're missing context. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not excusing it. I just am curious. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I think that um, we are lucky. We are fortunate to live in a time when we don't have to, you know, be put in positions where we have to choose, you know, it must've been very difficult to decide whether or not to testify before the, you know, house on American activities, like all that stuff. Um, If you don't, then this might happen. And, you know, People were put in very, very uncomfortable positions. People in different countries are put in very uncomfortable positions where they might have to go to prison or they might have to, you know, go into exile or whatever because of their political views or the things that they say. 
and we're fortunate, really fortunate to live in spite of the looming threat from Trump. Um, this remains the best time that there's ever been to be alive, uh, certainly in terms of freedom of thought and expression. So, you know, every day I'm grateful for that. Um, As you know, I love your optimism. <laughs> See what I said? It's a good land the plane thing. It's a good land the plane thing. Let's land it. Okay. So uh, <laughs> where can people find you? online not yeah, traveling well, I mean, i'm kind of in all the obvious places but i would especially love for you to come to my Substack called dispatches from the road which is but my my last name is spelled s-p-e-c-h-l-e-r so you can really find me anywhere yeah when i go if you google you you it diana spencer is what comes up like that's the first oh. suggestion which is like <laughs> so she's, she's older she you know, was born before I was, but I actually preceded her princess years. <laughs> it's true. You should come up first, yeah. damn it. You should come up first. Um, totally. Well, thanks so much for hanging out today and talking about all this stuff because it was a lot of fun this as is always. The best. Yeah. Great yeah. to see you. Likewise. Diana Speckler. Thank you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W Media. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.